welcome back to the Miss Independent podcast, where we teach women to be more confident investors, entrepreneurs, and go further in their careers. Today, we have an awesome episode lined up for you guys with a special guest. He goes by the name of Ryan Kia, and he's been investing in financial markets since the age of 11. He's currently 18 and works as the head of finance for KWG Global, a research consultancy in the field of academia. He also co-founded Quantium Research Limited, a company that produces articles, videos, podcasts, and weekly reports for investors via their news-released QR Plus package. Let's jump into it. Ryan, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast today. We're so excited to get into it and talk to you about what you do, who you are, and just chat all things finance and quanting. Why don't we just start there? You can tell us a little bit about who you are and what your story is. Okay, so my name is Ryan Rahimikia, but I go by Ryan Kia because my last name sometimes doesn't fit in the social media bits. But uh, I'm 18 years old, and when it was 2013 when I started getting involved in investment, a very scary field for most of us and a lot of people have had experiences in that kind of thing and i i experienced falling on my face which i think is a great thing to learn from and now i guess that's what i do and i also work as head of finance for a company called kwg global we are a consultancy in the academic field Ryan, what you've been able to accomplish at the age of 18 is just astounding. And what I want us to dig into a little bit is quantum research and the kind of work that you do there, the kind of content that you produce, because I think that is something that's just incredible that you've been sharing with the world. And I want to dig into that a little bit. Oh, okay. All right. So uh, I started quantum research a while ago because I had a friend of a similar age and we were both really into the markets, but we didn't really know how we could produce content. We wanted to make a nice clean site and all that stuff. I'd always wanted to do something like that. But when we had a conversation, I met him through an investment competition. His name's Luke. He's the uh, other person I run quantum research with. We met each other. We realized that we both kind of had a shared interest for finance, the markets, trading, investment, all sorts of stuff. So what we did was we said, we're going to make this site. And initially I was making podcasts and sometimes articles. Luke was making articles as well. Anything from technical analysis, which is the chance, to fundamental analysis, to whatever really, behavioral finance. And we were just releasing them into a niche little investment community, specifically in London and and spreading to other parts of the UK. I started this podcast where I would do kind of market news. I would wake up 6 a.m. in the morning, get myself prepared, have breakfast, and then from seven till eight, I would be reading all the headlines that would be released and summarizing them. So before market would come out, before market would begin, I would release those podcasts so that people who kind of wanted to see what was going on would be able to understand from then. And then I realized that a lot of people liked what we were doing, but it was kind of difficult to release regular content like that. I was finding myself every day for a good six weeks straight of the five trading days in a week. I was waking up and realizing that I cannot do this. I can't just in 15 minutes make a nice, clean bit of content. Sometimes I say, I'm tired, how do I edit it? So I thought instead I wanted to switch to analytical kind of podcast episodes. So I'd go into companies, I'd go into concept. I'd use examples from my past, especially losses, because I think it's really important to talk about things that went wrong so that we can learn from it. What's the point of looking back and saying, ah, this went well? So I'm going to look at it and make myself feel good. No, that's not how we should go. Uh, So we transitioned into 
those podcasts being released and more articles. And now we have a team of writers working with us as well, all young people interested in the markets and uh, areas of behavioral finance as well. We produce a report that we release weekly for three different asset classes. We call that QR Plus. And we are we're trying to build even a fund out of it from any revenues that come through. Build some media on our site. We have a lot of content and all that. And hopefully it will be a nice little hub for investors in the future. Wow, that's amazing, Ryan. Honestly, I don't know how you are able to edit episodes within 15 minutes. Like that's something that Katie and I struggle with. And I mean, you could definitely outsource it like once you grow and have somebody else do it. But the editing, guys, if you are thinking about starting a podcast, it takes hours. So honestly, hats off to you for doing that for as long as you did. So Ryan, where do you put those reports? What's your website called? So we can link it in the show notes for all our listeners. Our website is called quantumresearch.co.uk. And uh, it's a very niche name, but it it's something that we like to use. The word quantum kind of sounds sciencey, and it's kind of beyond finance. We, we're not a generic site where you'd type something or you'd see a video and you'd get a basic explanation. You'd get an explanation for something, but then you would have its practicality. Because I think, for example, for myself, if I was trying to learn how to get involved with the markets, anything from trading, so short-term periods and, and all that swing trades or whatever, to longer-term investment holdings, I'd want to know how things work in action. There's a beautiful book I read by the name, of, well, it was written by a man called Lee Freeman Shaw. It was called The Art of Execution. And that book showed examples from a hedge fund manager's history. He, he said investors had failed in this company and this is why they did, this is their approach that failed. And gives a case study. So we like to give case studies, real life investment examples and put it into action. That's so, so important, especially when you're talking about failures. That's the best kind of experience to learn from because you can reflect and say, okay, what did I do wrong? What could have I done? What could I have done better, right? And if you're looking at wins solely, like like you said, you're just, you're pumping yourself up and you're not learning anything from that. A lot of it could have been luck or just things in the market that you're not in control of. Whereas with failures, you can do a lot more analysis. And by looking at failures and what you didn't succeed in, you give other people the opportunity to really learn from that as well and not make the same mistakes. I completely agree. I think I think when you tell somebody that, look, I lost this much money in such a short period of time, they understand because a lot of people are sensitive when it comes to things like money. I mean, when I was growing up, a couple of pounds to me or a couple of dollars for you guys meant a lot to me. It was something that if I lost it, I would sit in bed for days. I would be extremely emotional. I'd feel sick. I wouldn't be able to look at myself in the mirror. Kind of thing. And I, I hope that by sharing those stories, people starting up will be able to, to not feel such emotions. Yeah, so the Clubhouse chat that we were in, Ryan and I actually met on Clubhouse in one of Farouk's rooms, and we were talking about how to take wins. And I think that's really subjective because, you know, everyone's investing style is different. But we were talking about emotional investing and how to remove emotions from investing decisions. So that's something that I want to dig into a little bit. How did you switch your mindset to not make decisions based on your emotions? So I, I think it's very difficult to be 0% emotional when it comes to this because I grew up in a working class background. And for me, when I saw money being made or money being lost, I'd think about what that money can do. And that is exactly what we shouldn't be doing. If you think about, oh, you've made, I don't know, a thousand pounds or a thousand dollars or whatever currency, you'd think what that money can buy. But that 
is what gets you too emotionally attached. If you realize, oh, I've lost this much, what can I do? I need to increase my size to make that same amount. But you can also lose that same amount. And that's how people blow up their accounts, by increasing their exposure to an asset when things are looking worse. You should simply add to companies that are quality at the right timing. That's a very difficult thing to get. But for me, when it came to getting rid of the emotional element, I feel people use this term experience. I'm a young guy, as many, many of us are quite young folks here, but I fell on my face a couple of times. My second ever investment, it was back in 2013. I almost blew up my entire account. And I remember for a week, I just wouldn't get up out of bed. I'd eat and then I'd go straight back there and I'd think, I think, I think. I wouldn't do anything to improve. I would simply talk about what went wrong. I'd play the victim card. And that's what a lot of people do when they lose money. But when you make money, all of a sudden, you're not thinking about what went wrong, you know, any elements of luck that came in there. You're just saying, I made money. People will talk about the fact that they made money on an investment. People who've never traded or never invested before will come and say, look, I made this much money on this company. But what about your losers? So I focused on my losers every time I could improve a certain way that I'd went wrong in the past. That's how I tried to build. And eventually I realized that this is part of the game. My number one tip to anybody trying to understand how do I get rid of this emotional side is think of it as a business. A business makes losses on some products as well. A business also makes money on some sales. But overall, the goal of the business is at the end of the year, you have a certain amount of revenue, a certain amount of turnover. At the end of the year, you want to have made a net profit. So with me, it doesn't matter whether I'm right all the time. In fact, a large majority of the time I could be wrong. But when I am right, it should be bigger than when I am wrong. The magnitude of your winners. So that's where you kind of realize, look, losing is part of the game. Mm hmm. I think you also, uh, you mentioned like the business analogy. When you're, when you're a business owner, you have a business plan and you're thinking about what your goals are and you have really clear numbers or things that you're, you're working towards. And you have that bigger picture in mind constantly as you're executing some of those smaller pieces. So I think what you're talking about where you're making um, maybe daily trades or how, what, whatever kind of trading you're doing, you're always thinking long-term and what it's going to come out to year end, right? For sure. For sure. Entirely. I mean, when, I've just been in the area of having experience of running a business. And I realized that you you think in terms of the long term, if you've got a yearly time frame where you measure your success, think about at the end of the year, where do I want to be? I want to progress myself a little bit. I can't just focus on something that went wrong. Look at all the successful business people in the world. Do, do they just get really upset, say, if their website's been taken offline or they've lost a bit of money? There's a court case or something. No, they move along and they become giants. I have been through both of those scenarios. And let me tell you, in that moment, you're not thinking about, oh, OK, I'm just going to stop. You're, you're thinking about what do I do now? How do I get my business back up? How do I Indeed. find a better lawyer? Like you're, you're constantly you're not thinking about that specific moment. You're thinking about what do I need to do in this moment to get me to where I want to be? So completely agree with you, Ryan. I want to ask you, though, like you are so young. I mean, to be 18 and to have all the experience that you have and just the fearlessness and the knowledge is just immaculate. So how, how did you just get into the space and what kind of resources did you look for to get you to where you are now? Well, at a super young age, 
I experience what many people experience, that whole financial difficulty where you see your family working hard, but yet there is still some form of struggle going on. I I was young when I realized it. We, we'd went through all sorts of things that had happened. And I wanted to try and make something for myself. I wanted to find my route. So what I would do is I would always buy and sell physical items here and there, anything from going to fairs and selling glow sticks. I remember there was a story I said I bought a pack of 30 glow sticks and I would sell them individually to my friends or anybody, even at church fairs or whatever. I would go everywhere and I would get that money, build it up and then do it again in different products. So I'd go from a small thing to a larger thing. All you need is a couple of pounds, a couple of dollars, whatever. Then you can go on, build, build, build. If you've ever heard of the analogy of the guy who traded a paperclip to a house, there, there's there's ways to probably not make as drastically much money, but you can build. So for me, from doing that, I saved up enough. I was about nine years old when I started buying and selling those things. Anything from pixels, advertising space, which uh, was a new era. Ironically, that's what NFTs happen to be these days, but uh, that's a whole different story. I would buy and sell those things. I had enough money and I thought, you know what? I saw this documentary called Million Dollar Traders. It had a guy called Anton Krill and he was managing like a million dollars worth of this investor called Lex Van Damme's money. But he put the money in the hand of total newbies to the game, people who never invested before. And I saw the emotional roller coaster where they were under so much pressure. Some people even walked out and these guys were supposed to trade money. And I thought, well, I've never done this before. I'm, I'm a young kid, but I really want to do that. I almost fell in love with the whole you wake up every morning and there's a new thing to it. So aged 11, I opened an account with a place called AT Online. It's called Alliance Trust Savings. They don't actually do brokerage accounts anymore to, to uh, people with lower deposits anymore. But I put a thousand pounds in there. And obviously, because I was so young, I had to open it under my dad's name. Everyone was supportive and all that stuff. And fast forward almost eight years now. I've loved it. I've switched brokers though, but uh, it's been a really nice experience without the headaches. <laughs> you <laughs> made a thousand pounds by age 11? By, by buying and selling physical items. That's crazy. You are such a hustler. Look at you. <laughs> you know what? The, the beauty of that whole clubhouse that where myself and Nika met as well is there are so many people with so beautiful stories. Farouk, for example, a very good friend, he has an amazing story of how he was 12 years old and he made his first social media account. He was on one platform where he had only a couple of followers. Now he's got millions of followers and he's at the top of the game in Clubhouse as well. It's amazing to see these stories. Yeah, Farouk is, is just amazing. I don't know if any of you guys are on Clubhouse, but I highly recommend if you have an iPhone. Farouk has just these incredible rooms and um, he hosted the chat that Ryan and I had met in initially. And right after that, I had to drop off. I went for a walk. I needed to reset my day. And I was kicking myself because I came back and I joined um, an overflow room that he had for Bill Gates came on Clubhouse and he hosted this giant room where people would talk about what Bill Gates was was presenting, basically. and Lex Friedman was in that room oh, yeah. on stage and Arthur, um, who was on stage with us earlier, was still on stage. And I was just kicking myself because Lex is amazing. And I don't know if any of you guys have listened to Lex Friedman's podcast. He is a big believer in aliens and talks a lot about <laughs> like different sci-fi concepts, but he's awesome. He's good friends with Joe Rogan. So yes, Farouk is just a presence and so inspiring to see what he's been able to build um, 
and accomplished, especially even on Clubhouse. Like he joined back in December. I think now he has 70,000 followers on there, which is just. And what I can say is who you see on Clubhouse, he is entirely that an amazing person. And I wouldn't be surprised if he remains on the top of the Clubhouse game, becomes the next big thing. Today, there's a Steve Ioki thing going on about NFTs and drops and that. Just, just big love to the guy. Really nice guy. Yeah. NFTs are actually a really, really interesting concept, which Katie and I are going to host an episode on to just debrief for anybody that's not familiar. But um, if you if you have some knowledge or some insight into it, do you want to give our audience just a little high level summary of what NFTs are in case anybody listening is like, what the heck is, is an NFT? Well, I, I actually learned on Clubhouse recently, I, I must say somebody said that uh, NFT stand for non fungible tokens. It's kind of like the crypto side system of the art world. What you can do is you can purchase these cryptocurrencies, but you would purchase like someone's art, say, for example, Banksy, a really famous artist or more so the smaller artists, they produce content and you use these NFTs, which would normally be bought under things like Ethereum, which is an example of a cryptocurrency. And you'd bid up the prices of that art and you'd own the rights to essentially that entire image, which is great for big marketing companies. But some people argue that it might be a bubble. You're seeing the other day, there was a piece of art that went for over $400,000 digital art. But then again, physical art and digital art are the same things. The valuations comprise of abstract ideologies. You can't just say that physical art is worth more than digital art because you're buying it because of the artist. And so the valuations seem to be quite similar, but some say it could be a bubble. I don't know. We just will have to find out. It might be the next big thing though. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> and uh, with digital art, I like holding, I like tangible things. So I think when it comes to physical art, just having something you can hold in your hands or display in your home, rather than something digitally. I think for me personally, I find a lot more value there. Mm, I see, I see, I see. No, I was just gonna comment on the the abstract um, valuation of art. Like I'm, I'm an artist, I paint, I mean, I'm not an artist. I paint recreationally like to get my mind off of business. And the first time I sold a painting, I had so, so much trouble just trying to value what that painting would sell for. Um, so I can't even comprehend almost why NFTs sometimes go for the prices that they do and i understand it's supply and demand and all of that but it's it's something that's difficult to almost wrap your head around i don't understand art because i know like picassos for example go for so much money and i went to i think one of the museums in barcelona and i was looking at this and i'm like a 12 year old kind of drew this it looked like like lines and squiggles and i know this isn't a popular opinion but i yeah i, I don't understand like how people value art because I think it's all personal and what people find beautiful or what people find to be attractive. Um, yeah, I just find that to be a little wild. Ryan, I quickly wanted to circle back before I forget my thought. You said something that was really interesting to me and I just kind of wanted you to elaborate more about that. Um, sure. You talked about getting into companies um, or good companies at the right time and that yeah. being the key. So what is the right time? Can you elaborate more on that? Oh, okay. So there are a lot of different factors that come into play. First of all, there's the thing of the overall market. You have to know what 
global economies are doing and how they're performing relative to one another. I could use the examples of airlines. A lot of people say airlines are going to bounce back, right? If that's what you believe, then which airline are you buying and why are you focusing particularly on domestic US airlines? Why not go to European airlines? I, I made a graphic a while back and uh, and produced a little bit of a live stream on, on a place called TradingView and I talked about how some of the companies in the US have been battered more than European ones. And then you see these US ones are now doing better than the European ones. We have to ask ourselves why. It's not as easy as simply buying the best company because sometimes the best company is valued quite expensively versus others. So there's that global side, but there's also the internal element of the business. In the modern era, let's say before this year, before 2021, the main trend was to buy growing companies, high revenue growth, and it doesn't necessarily matter if they were profitable, but if they had some form of scope to be extremely profitable in the future. The, the likes of, uh, I could say, a Tesla, for example, a huge audience of people, they would buy one thing and then more products would be released in the future and that revenue would multiply. Apple, for example. Apple made, I think, a huge amount of money of just selling AirPods, the add-ons to the iPhones and the iPads and sorts, their products. So that growth kind of quality, the high earnings multiple situation was the trend of the past 10 years from 2010 till 2020. Now there's an argument of people saying it's going to be a shift towards value. Value is what we call technically cyclical stocks. These old school companies that don't have lots of growth. They tend to pay dividends. They tend to have stable revenue over many years, maybe a couple percent in line with inflation kind of thing. Now, those businesses have seen inflows as of recent by observing the quantitative scene of everything, by looking at what exactly is attracting money, what is going out of trend, what is outperforming relative to one another, what is underperforming and all that with it. There are so many different influences as well. Then you're able to find out, is it the right time? Is momentum on my side? Are fundamentals on my side? And if that is the case, then you can take an investment stance. Speaking about fundamentals, do you think fundamentals play into today's market? Because I see some some companies and some stocks just shooting up in value, and I just don't understand why. And some stocks that are fundamentally sound and have great fundamentals aren't doing as well. So what are your thoughts, I guess, right now on today's market and what's going on with the volatility? Well, I believe that in the long term, all companies will revert to their fair values. And what are their fair values? I believe that tends towards their fundamental values. So when Joe Biden won the election as of recent, everyone was talking about ESG stocks. So you had stocks like CSIQ, Jinko Solar, Sunrun, Fast Solar, all those, those four major solar panel companies. They, their shares had exploded. One of them had gone from $10 all the way to, oh, um, I think almost $100. Now that company is now down to about 44. Their fair value is still even 50% lower than that. Yet the momentum is what kind of influenced that break. When one person starts buying in huge size, the shares of the top rises, people start to follow on with that kind of thing. So fundamentals don't take any form 
of uh, uh, existence. But I believe that a company that is quality growing has strong, solid fundamentals in 10 years time. If it's a company that you can hold in your portfolio and say you can sleep at night holding, then that's something that you can rarely go wrong with. Although it's not the strategy I take, I think at the very minimum, if you're holding something in your portfolio, know that you can sleep at night knowing you can justify its value. Tesla, for example, at $900. Elon Musk is an amazing person, in my opinion, a visionary, a huge inspiration to many young people and old too. But the valuation of that company at the time was bigger than I think all of the top auto manufacturers and and their market capitalization not just tesla but most ev companies were overinflated by fundamental standards so they corrected as of recent they could go higher in the long run but they will revert to some form of fundamentals things don't go up in a straight line is my my thoughts i uh, yeah tesla is a great example i love tesla um again elon is a huge visionary but i just can't i still can't justify Tesla at over a thousand PE. Mm-hmm. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it is over a thousand PE still. I haven't looked into it recently, but when I was trading at like 1200 PE or something like that, I just can't personally justify investing in something like that. Let's just, let's just let the audience know for those who aren't familiar with PE ratios, price to earnings ratios, that accounts for essentially how many times a company is trading at its yearly earnings. So you can have the PE for a year. Say a company in 2020 earns $100 million and their market cap is $1 billion. Their PE ratio is 10. That means it will take 10 years at the current rate of earnings to cover their market value right now. So as 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 you pointed out, a thousand PE essentially equates to a thousand years of current profitability to cover its market cap. So you only have to wait a thousand years to make a hundred percent, which is horrible. No, it is. So are you more of a long-term investor or a trader, a day trader? Um, I don't, I don't know if you got into that, but what is more your investing strategy? What do you like to do? So when I started, I didn't really understand anything about investment or trading or what the difference was particularly. I I found love for a topic called asset allocation, where you have a certain amount allocated to stocks in, say, a certain sector, a certain market. But when I'd begun for the first three or four years, I would literally trade small caps, which are the equivalent of penny stocks, if you've heard the term. Uh, a crazy world where you could see a stock crash overnight or boom. Within a week, I'd seen a stock go up 10 times and then you get that FOMO kind of thing. It was There were no fundamentals to those companies. It was momentum. But that's kind of how I built my portfolio up initially for the first three, four years. I think a lot of it was luck and that's what infuriated me. I didn't want to be making money and saying, oh, you know, uh, it's luck. Now I'm never going to be able to replicate this in the future. I kind of jumped ship when I realized that I didn't really have a strategy or a system. I was kind of playing off momentum and stuff like that. It, I, I don't know. I was, I was just very critical and that's why when something was good, I would find it kind of thing. A lot of people were just buying whatever. It's kind of a gambler mentality then. So I, as I grew my portfolio, I didn't have to hold one investment in one company, which was crazy. Because, you know, with a thousand pounds, what are you going to do? Buy six companies, pay transaction fees, all that. It doesn't make sense. You end up losing money even if you made money on the shares. So as I grew my portfolio and I started putting 
had some sources of income where I was putting money aside as well. What I did was I started researching into different markets, not specifically different different domestic markets, but rather different international markets as well. I fell in love with shares in the CSI 300, the Chinese and Hong Kong based exchanges, anywhere to, to Toronto's stock exchange. It was beautiful. And I realized that whilst I do like to trade, I take a kind of swing trading, kind of day trading approach to most of what I do. I have investments as well. I realized you could buy things like ETFs. ETFs are exchange traded funds. If you don't want to buy a single company in tech, you don't know which one's better, then buy a compilation of the top 10 tech companies and you'd still make sector returns, which whilst they're not hundreds of thousands of percent, they are still better than what you can get anywhere else. And if you really like tech, that's what you tend to do. So I ended up experimenting with ETFs. I would buy companies. In 2016, there was a company I bought called Ferexpo, around 86 pence or so was my average. And I held it for a year and three months. It went to around 256. That company is actually a little bit higher than what it is, what I sold it at now. But it was beautiful seeing that I can simply wait, have something in my portfolio for a year and three months and make over 200% returns. That made me smile. So I have an allocation of my portfolio to investments and I have an allocation towards trading. So Ryan, Katie and I are, are big fans of, of ETFs. So we talk about ETFs all the time on the podcast. I'm happy that you brought it up. Um, I love ETFs. Yeah, I wanted <laughs> to just- Happy Woods. Our, our ETFs are amazing. Sorry, uh, go ahead, No, I just wanted to circle back a little bit. So Ryan, you talked about the airlines and like for somebody who- you know, thinks the airline industry is going to go up there investing in domestic airlines instead of mm -hmm. international airlines like KLM, for example. And I think a lot of that leads back to frame of reference and people not educating themselves about what's going on in international markets. So when you started to look into China or even like the TSX, for example, you uh, didn't live in those areas, right? That's my understanding. Yeah. But yeah. you went out of your way to learn about what's going on in those industries, research and understand and immerse yourself into those markets. So I think it's really important for people to understand that when you live somewhere, like the bubble of where you live isn't the be end and end all of life. There is so much more going on in the world and mm -hmm. international markets are so exciting. Um, you tweeted something actually yesterday or a couple of days ago about uh, us having Fangum, right? Facebook, <laughs> Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Google, and China having BAT. So yes. can you shed some light on what that is and what's going on in China, because China's a market that I'm personally really curious about. We've, Katie and I've talked about it a little bit before, but I, I want to dig into that a little bit more. Yeah, and we okay. heard you love Baba. <laughs> oh, I, who said that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I love um, uh, BAT, what that stands for. China has had the largest growth of its middle class population. No other country has seen that kind of shift from a third world country to one that we can say is part of the developed world and is on track to become potentially larger than the US in terms of GDP. That's the total amount of goods and services produced per year by the nation. Now, BAT stands for Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. These in my opinion, are three of the most prominent companies in China. And these companies are mostly tech related. Baidu, I think, has been 
wanting to venture into electric vehicles. Their shares have soared as of recent. Alibaba is the e-commerce giant. Tencent owns companies like Epic Games, which own Clash of Clans, Clash Royale, many other games. I think, I don't know if they own Fortnite as well. I've got to double check with that stuff. But those businesses are the future. The problem is, the problem is that when one wants to invest in these kind of companies, you first have the language barrier because to research into a company's financials or a transcript of a meeting, a lot of the time they're based in the home country's language. So if we wanted to go and look at, say, Facebook's earnings transcript, then we could simply Google it, read through or listen to it. But you can't just listen to something in, in Chinese if you've never spoke the language before, you don't understand the culture kind of thing. And that's, that's a major barrier. There's also the barrier of infrastructure. For me, if I wanted to buy shares in Chinese stocks, I wouldn't be able to buy it in most. The only way I can do it is through things called ADRs. They're called American Depository Receipts. So essentially you're buying a certificate of a shareholding in that company. So this is what you can do with Alibaba. This is what you can do with Baidu, for example. So Alibaba's ticker symbols, Baba, dollar, and then B-A-B-A. To, to mention about Alibaba though, the reason why I like talking about this company, I don't currently hold a shareholding in them whilst I'm looking to. I, I wanted to use them as an example of a company that has become a giant. This business is making over $20 billion a year in profits. I'm not talking about revenues, gross, none of that. I'm talking net profits, $20 billion a year. And in 2021, it's expected to be 27. That form of growth, consistent growth, we don't see it in the fangs in Europe. Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, that's what FANG stands for. China's market, whilst Donald Trump before in the US had a lot of policies that were protectionist. It was trying to, he was trying to essentially fight China, which is smart of him because China's on track to be stronger than the US's market. The problem is that now that he's gone, there are looser policies and now China's Chinese markets, literally the amount of inflows that went into the CSI 300, their stock exchange, were crazy. I think the index did about 30% or 40% within a short period of time. The only problem I have with Chinese indexes is that they are so much more volatile than the US and UK. Think of a stock like Tesla, right? Down 20% in a couple of days. In the CSI 300, I've seen some companies where you've had drawdowns of 50, 60% and they don't bounce at all kind of thing. It's just a straight drop. I, I also love Baba. I'm a huge fan. Um, another thing I think people need to consider when thinking of investing in international markets is what's going on politically. For sure. So I know right now, the reason why I personally haven't invested in Baba right now is because of the, um, all the e-commerce companies in China, from what I know, are under investigation due to, I think, anti-competitive behavior by sure. the Chinese government. So I think it's really important also, if you are thinking of investing in international markets, to just do the research on like what's going on politically and in their economy at the time as well. I agree. I mean, to, to bring back to the point about Baba, not only are they under an investigation about monopoly, uh, monopolistic practices, they actually wanted to list a company they own a third stake in called Ant Financial. Now, Ant Financial 
is the company that owns Alipay, a, a business that has roughly a billion active users on a monthly basis. And that's literally the number one platform. They have over a 50% market share in the mobile payments market in China. Now that that business wanted to IPO, it would have been the largest IPO in history. But the regulators stepped in and said there were too many exposures to microloans, consumer loans, essentially something that would create a bubble is what they thought. We don't know whether this is because Jack Ma fell out with regulators by calling them old or something. We don't know. But the, the that IPO hasn't gone through and the shares have kind of fallen off their $320 highs as of recent. They're about $230 or so right now, $240. And people are selling off. Hedge funds have sold off. There was, a I think, a company called GQR, GDR or something. They sold 9.8 million shares just like that in the fourth quarter of 2020. Why? We don't know. They've mentioned the reason that they have, though, is because they think that Alibaba's listing in the US might be at risk. It might only be listed in China at some point in the future. We don't know whether this is true, but for me, I look at the business that is quality. I look at a business that is growing and it's not only the cheapest growth company, but it has the highest rates of growth versus Tencent, Baidu, anyone, Pinduo, Duo, you name it. So what price are you looking at for Baba? When are you gonna jump in, Ryan? Well, for me, I, I'd kind of hope for this IPO thing to, to be on the road a little bit more. I don't mind whether I'm buying less or more. I would pay 20% more without that risk because that is a major, major risk at the moment. It shows that regulators are essentially playing puppet master with the company. And I'm not sure if I want to take that risk. But the beauty is, even if I do want to take that risk, I allocate myself accordingly. I wanted to get in around the 220s for a little bit of a bite. And then if it went to 200 or so, I would also add more. But uh, I'd have like a hard stop at 170 or so. Now, I could be wrong. I could end up losing money, but I'm comfortable with it. What I do mentally is I price in the worst case scenario amount of loss. And I wanted to bring on to quantitative analysis a little bit because when I'm putting my stop loss, I don't put it just because I think, oh no, this stock won't go lower than 170 because that was the recent lowest kind of thing. I think, what is the volatility? I actually compile it on a spreadsheet. I, I use code. Python is a beautiful language to take advantage of. And then once I've calculated that volatility, I put my stock based off that. So if a stock was at, I don't know, $200 as its recent low and the worst case scenario you'd think looking at a chart just visually would be say 180. If my volatility situation says like 168, then I'd be happy to hold that because I'm I'm in. Even if the worst case scenario happens, there has to be a second worst case scenario. So I have good probability of being involved in that and not getting cut out. Because with Alibaba, I want to hold it for two years, three years. At $200, it could be worth $500 within the next year. Who knows? Within two years time. Uh, it could be worth a thousand dollars within five years time using their, their current forecast. Who knows really? But I would suggest adjusting your stop losses for volatility, not just by a nominal amount. When you talk about volatility, um, I know you said you mentioned you use Python, but do you ever look at the volatility index, the VIX, to understand how the market's responding? I think the VIX is a really overused indicator these days. A lot of people say, oh, the VIX has exploded. So um, the market is going to crash. If you look at a chart of the VIX 
there are always these random spikes and then it goes straight down kind of thing. I, with respect to the VIX of trading, I don't think it has a direct correlation or direct impact on anything I do in particular. I like to observe things that are relevant though. That is relevant from time to time. What I'd rather do is I would look at the sectors. I would look at the overall markets, things that are most correlated and see how they're performing. But not only do you look at related companies, related sectors, related indexes, you also look at the credit markets. There are so many different variables that come into play. Interest rates, for example. We had interest rates tending towards zero even before this pandemic. I was short an airline company that was most exposed. They were called TUI and their shares crashed because of this pandemic stuff. I didn't expect the pandemic to happen and I closed, I think about 100% above the low, but still I'd made about 60% on the position. That that company was most exposed to a super low interest rate environment where where the markets, the high betas, we'd call them, things that are most correlated to the overall stock markets would take a tumble. And that's exactly what happened. I think I would rather look at assets that are most correlated. First of all, systemic things. So things that affect the market, yield curve, that measurement. We had a yield curve inversion about a year ago. And ironically enough, we had a recession straight after. Those things we should be following rather than what people are saying. Oh, look, if Tesla crashes, the market crashes. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> if Tesla goes down, there will be a new Tesla in the future. Tesla's a great company, but let's just say these EV companies, the other ones, if they blow up, there's going to be new ones kind of thing. But the market, if the market's suffering, if, if there's a lack of liquidity everywhere else, then things start to fall. So speaking of the yield curve right now, so do you think there's a mar uh, crash coming, a market crash coming? I don't believe so. Trending? I, I think at the current situation, we've just came out of a crisis. And in fact, most global stock markets are making 52 week highs. Go to Italy, go to really anywhere in Europe. These global markets that were supposedly messy, messy stock markets, where even in the greatest bull market in, well, not in history, but one of the greatest bull markets in history, 11 years of straight growth across the globe in, in most of our developed markets. Countries like Italy, their stock markets hadn't been doing so well. So now why is it that coming out of a global pandemic, they're doing better than they were previously? Japan's index way better than they've ever had in terms of returns. I feel that this is potentially the beginning of a super cycle, but we shall have to see. We shall have to see. My only thought on that is the crash we saw last March, the... Um, did not last for that long. And if we look at history and stock market crashes, they normally last for at least a couple of years. In this case, it was what, about a, a month? I don't know, a few weeks. Yeah. So I don't know if that was a proper crash and if we're due for a bigger one coming up. I agree. I mean, the, the current fears right now are on inflation, you know, hyperinflation, something that isn't happening at the moment. Prices have remained fairly stable. People have said if hyperinflation occurs, then the cost of producing items goes up. So businesses selling products aren't able to make profits. They go out of business. But when you have hyperinflation, the currency loses its value. So when it loses its value, the stock price rises because the currency has a similar purchasing power, if not weaker purchasing power. But 
that stock is artificially higher. It doesn't mean you've made real returns. It just means you've made nominal returns. So under that circumstance, stocks would still generally go up. It just wouldn't have the same purchasing power. Say if I had $100 versus $140, that $140 would probably buy the same as $100 did before. So it's all kind of a fake representation. In terms of stock market crashes, when you have things that are systematically important struggling, that's generally a sign of weakness. So for example, financials. Financials right now are performing in some of the strongest levels in history. Why are financials doing so well? Well, that's not a sign of a recession. Let's get rid of that. Let's look at what else is systematically important. Retail, responsible for a lot of jobs. A lot of people, young folks like us, work at restaurants, work at supermarkets, whatever, uh, shops, anything from Gap to whoever. Now, these businesses are doing better than they were pre-crisis, not fundamentally, but in terms of their share price, businesses like that can raise money. They're in a good position in terms of liquidity. Now, why is this happening? It's all down to QE. If you've seen what the US government, the Fed specifically, have done, they've been doing asset purchases. All this stimulus, the $1.9 trillion that was passed the other day. That stimulus, they're buying up the bonds of these companies that are at risk and they're guaranteeing it. So when they buy up the bonds, those companies have liquidity their shares are all of a sudden more stable because they think, okay, they're not going to default on that debt. And then things start working better for them. So I wonder if the government stops printing money, then... What's then going to happen? Yeah. What will happen? But will they? Because in the UK, the central bank, the Bank of England here, not central bank, the Bank of England here, has not even done as much as the US. But I, I imagine if they did, would we have had such a similar scenario? The only thing I worry about moving forward is interest rates being near to zero. How are you going to stimulate the economy if your interest rates are so low? Think about it. To, the cost of borrowing money is so low right now that property markets, I'm, I'm sure across Canada as well, I'm sure across the US, I've seen it in the UK, within a couple of months, we've seen average house prices in some areas increasing by 7%. 7% was a good year, let alone a couple of months. That is because it's so cheap to borrow money. Banks want to lend as much. We're seeing a, a, a revamp of that 2008 crisis kind of scenario. But what will the governments come up with next to protect themselves from a potential bubble? Are they going to have like something different to QE? Instead of printing money, are they going to like, I don't know, come up with a new policy? That's the only hope in my opinion. I don't think governments are going to stop printing money anytime soon. <laughs> One thing that's happening in Canada, though, which is really interesting, is two of the banks have said that they are going to increase interest rates. So yeah. in terms of borrowing money for people that are um, you know, trying to buy property, it's, it's going to slow, at least in their eyes, um, the property market a little bit, and it's going to bring housing prices down. Yeah. And, and that's what their hopes are. But who knows how it will actually play out? I hope so, too. <laughs> I'll tell you guys something they've done over here in the UK. When someone buys an investment property, you pay something called stamp duty. I don't know what it is in anywhere else in the world. But that stamp duty was about, I think, 5% of anything above £300,000. So if you buy a property at uh, £400,000, that is not your 
residential one, like your second, third, whatever investment property, then you would pay 5% of that 100,000. So you would pay 5,000 pounds just in stamp duty. And that tax goes towards the government. What the government has done is they were afraid of what was going to happen in the housing market. They thought there would be a crash. In fact, the Bank of England said, under the worst case scenario, house prices would fall by 30%. Now, the irony is we've seen all time highs in property prices. Why? They got rid of that stamp duty. I think they changed the things to like 500,000 or whatever. And, and they extended it as of recent. So not only did we have it for about three, four months, they're going to extend it. So literally people can buy investment properties without paying that element of tax, the stamp duty. It's so much cheaper. There's so much more money involved. They're renting these properties out. The prices are just rising. People are buying houses that are messed up, absolutely broken and just selling them on for like 10% in a couple of months after that. I fear for this market because the, the working class of us, the, or not even that, the young people, us, when we get into jobs, we wanna buy a house. How are we gonna buy a property if the prices are rising at a faster rate than our earnings? But the UK government here has said they're gonna do 95% mortgages. So you put up, say a certain amount of money, and you're earning say 20,000 a year, you divide that by 0.05 and you get how much you can borrow. So this is so much of a loan being taken on. I worry, will the housing market here just explode into <laughs> something crazy? We don't know. I, I wonder where else in the world this has happened. And it sounds like you're just going to be in debt for the rest of your life too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you don't lose the home, of course. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting to see where the housing market goes, but the stock market in general, I mean, the next couple of months, as soon as some of that, that money that people have been saving, the rate of the savings for the average American household has been substantially higher than ever before. So people are just holding on to their money or investing it, and it's not circulating into the economy. And that's why we haven't seen inflation yet. I agree. I, I mean, think of it this way. Uh, I don't know what you guys have in the US in terms of employment relief. So if someone's not working, uh, do they have wages guaranteed by the government? Is anything like that going on right now? So there is a stimulus that's happening in the US. I think they were handing out $600, which is not nearly enough for, for anybody to sustain themselves. Um, in Canada, we had something called CERB. And I think the government was really quick to bring this money out to the people that needed it. A lot of people ended up taking advantage of it. Um, but so there, there is support for people. And with CERB, I believe it was $2,000 a month that you were getting. So the before you know, taxes, before yeah. taxes, yeah, 1400 around there. I see. We, we have something a little bit different. It's called the furlough scheme. So what the government has done is they've guaranteed 80% of full-time workers' incomes who are forced to work at home. So let's say if you can't come into the office, say you live outside of London, for example. I, I live in London. People who live outside of London, let's say two hours away, they catch a train or something and they come and work in the city. The cost of transport, if you want to buy a coffee, you want to get some food outside, it's so expensive. London is New York of the US and, and for you guys in Canada, I, I don't know, is there a super expensive city there? Toronto. <laughs> Toronto, okay. Vancouver, they're both pretty <laughs> Both of them. Just imagine super expensive, $5 for a cup of coffee kind of thing. Five pounds here for a cup of coffee, which is more dollars. That's about $7. Now, that particular situation, people would travel. They would spend money. They would eat. They would spend money. I don't know, Uber or whatever. Maybe stay in a hotel for a couple of nights. 
Now, none of that's happening. So those hospitality businesses, the ones that sell you the coffee, no money's coming in. How are they going to pay their staff? Governments guaranteeing 80% of it. So they only have to pay 20%. The businesses that deliver, they have to make enough money to cover that 20% commitment that they make themselves. So some are surviving. Popular businesses are surviving, the ones that continue to operate. But that amount of money being saved by the individual from staying at home, imagine getting 100,000 pounds or dollars a year, whatever, and just sitting at your laptop, doing a couple of meetings, typing up, spending time with your kids or whatever, or your family. That is amazing. But the amount of money they're saving, the ones that are still in employment, it's amazing. Unless they develop an online shopping addiction and blow oh, it all there. <laughs> I, I forgot about Amazon, Netflix, all this stuff that's about, yeah. Oh, Etsy's one as well. I've been looking at Etsy the other day. I feel like I'm addicted. <laughs> yeah, and if, it, if it's not um, consumerism um, online spending, whether it's Amazon, online shopping at boutiques, it's putting their money in the stock market. I've seen a lot of people now who were not investing before just blindly start throwing their money at stocks because of, you know, these... Hmm. Um, reddit threads and basically oh. hype on social media so even though in theory a lot of people should be saving a lot more money i i i don't really see it happening amongst people i know at least yeah i mean uh, I, you brought up an amazing point with the reddit threads this is one thing that is a, a toxic kind of element that comes out of the beauty of investing in the markets now GameStop, I'm sure many of us are familiar with GameStop, AMC theaters, what else is there? Oh, there are just so many. I think it's probably better I don't mention them. I'm but still I going long in AMC. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that works out for uh, a business that does not actually have theaters on the moon, just for those listening who, who think that that's real. No, but I, I was in a group chat a while back and I remember people saying that They've uh, bought AMC. This was right like early on the hype when it had just exploded and everything. And that person bought into AMC at I think $10 or something. Was it $14? I, I don't know. And within 24 hours, next morning I go for a walk. I check my phone and I'm like, let me just check it. That person's lost half their investment. Oh my. I can see you pointed. I just. that person. <laughs> <laughs> but imagine students are doing that right now. There's... um. People right now, they got their student loan around that time and they're spending all of that to buy GameStop shares and losing half of it. I feel bad for them, you know, but what can we do? Because it's an addiction. It's like going to the casino, but yeah. there's no fun. There's no fun. Well, the casinos are closed right now, right? So I think the stock market is an outlet for a lot of people that have some of those 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 tendencies. Um, I think what you're doing and what Katie and I are, are doing is trying to educate people in the space and trying to help them make really financially literate decisions. Um, and so I'm so grateful that you came on today just to share how you do quantitative analysis before you make investment decisions. And so people understand that if you're going to be actively trading, there is so much thought that goes into some of those moves, right? You don't win all the time. And you can't, I think with right now with people um, and the way that they're thinking is there's a tendency to want to get rich quick. And yeah. with everybody on social media, living their best life, it's, it's so easy to see that and say, I want that. And I'm, I'm going to do it through, you know, throwing all my money into the stock market. 
there's lots of different ways to build wealth, whether it's property, buying property, investing in real estate, building businesses, which I'm a big fan of, or investing in the stock market, like throwing your money into one of these meme stocks, in our <laughs> opinion, is not the way to get there. Yeah, my, my number one kind of, uh, I wouldn't say advice, but the pointer to anybody who either wants to get involved in investment or, or maybe pursue a career in this kind of area, I would suggest not giving up on yourself, no matter what happens, no matter how cliche it sounds, it's difficult. I remember about a couple days in, as I said, my second investment, I almost blew up my entire account. And I was telling my dad that, you know, I don't think I'm built for this. I kind of, I want to give up. This is too stressful. I don't feel great or anything. I remember my dad and I'm so grateful for having somebody like him in my life. And those I'm sure who are listening have that inspirational figure to them in their lives, the person they can talk to that helps them when they are in tough times. He was telling me, look, son, if you can't get through this one loss, imagine how many losses you're going to have if you want to pursue a career in this. You got to start hardening up. You got to start preparing yourself and don't worry too much. It's just money. Such it's great true. advice. It's just money. I you think people keep... don't understand that you can just make more of it. it it's not finite. It, there's so many opportunities like me and Nika talk about to make money all the time. You just need to look for them and be receptive to them. Um, in terms of GameStop and all these young people and youth, unfortunately losing money, in trades like this. I think as we talked about before, um, when you lose money and you make, make mistakes, you learn from these failures. And like you, Ryan, you've learned a lot from your failures. And now going forward, you don't make the same mistakes. So I think it's good that something like this happened and a lot of people learn from it. Unfortunately, a lot of people did lose a good portion of their livelihood, but I don't know. I think going forward, people will be hopefully a bit smarter about it. That's it. To know what you're buying and why you're buying it. Sometimes I've, I've in the past bought into companies that I wouldn't say are quality, but I was buying them at really good prices. So if I made money on that, I wouldn't be surprised. But the overwhelming kind of sentiment should be buying things you're comfortable with. Think of it as a bank account, but kind of expanded in a way where you have more choice. You know where your money is going into and it helps you learn as well. When you go through losses in investments, you grow as a person. For me, I feel like it helps me become a little bit more emotionally resilient. When you, you lose a lot of money in a short period of time. I was eating a sandwich once in a class and I bought into a company called Sephora and within like 30 minutes, I was down half my investment and I felt so horrible, but it, I remember those moments and that's what helps us develop. For sure, Ryan. I think it's also so amazing that you have a figure like your dad who's able to help you through this and somebody to lean on as a mentor even. Um, I think it's important to find people like that in your life who can support you when you're going through um, just even tough financial times in general. Like a lot of people right now have lost their jobs because of the COVID pandemic. And so having having people like that in your life who can support you is so important. For sure. Very yeah. grateful for such people. Yeah. Ryan, I want to wrap it up here because you it's a little bit late and I want you to get back to your day. It was such an incredible conversation. I, I'm so grateful for you coming on to our podcast, sharing your insights and um, sharing your, your knowledge with our listeners. I'm sure they're, they were loving this episode as well. So thank you thank so much. You. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for uh, getting in touch. And, and I love what you guys do. And I hope you continue to keep shining out here. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, guys, until next time, we are posting episodes every Wednesday. So you'll hear back from us then. Bye. Have an awesome week, guys. We'll see you next time.